0: I invite you to be turning to Acts chapter 9 in your Bibles. We start part 2, sermon 1, today in our series in Acts. The last time we were in Acts was the last Sunday of November last year, so I'm sure you remember it like it was yesterday But last year we went from Acts chapters 1 through 8, and I hope to be in Acts now until the end of chapter 15, not this one Sunday. But to get you thinking about our topic today, I want you to think about two people in your life. They might be the same person, maybe not. Who is it that you really wish would place their faith in Jesus? salvation and secondly who do you think would never come to Christ any under any circumstances who is it that you most want to see saved and who is it that would never be saved I have lots of friends and family members I want to see saved and for me it seems like every conversation for me so much more could be said or is left unsaid and we have that wrestling, what could I say? Could I say anything? Or do they even think about it? Have they ever came close to seeing Jesus? And we, we search the Scriptures looking for hopeful nuggets. <laughs> we pray constantly. And we try to balance that line of being friends, acting like everything is okay, but at the same time we have that great awesome and fear knowing that they don't understand our anxiousness about their soul, and and at times worrying, well, maybe they think we're really weird (laughs) because they're put off by it. Who is it that you most want to see saved? Also, who is it that you think will never be saved? As I said, this could be the same person or it could be somebody else. Many of us, I'm sure, imagine political opponents (laughs) whom we know aren't Christians or we think about devout atheists or devout persons of other religious or even so-called Christians that are actually very cultish. People who have maybe heard the truth over and over, instead of just shrugging it off, they repeatedly mock it and hate it and actively combat it to where, well, you know you should pray for everyone, and especially pray for enemies, but you never pray for them. It never crosses your mind because you're so busy dodging their attacks or working through their anger because of their attacks. They'd never be saved. They're not seeking to be saved. Well, as you might know, today we read a story of the conversion of Saul, who is also Paul of Tarsus. And here indeed was an enemy of Christ. In fact, we we know that he knew the gospel and he hated it. We often think that if those unsaved were just to hear the gospel a bit more, if they just had a, a bit more information, they'd understand it and be saved, but the story of Saul to me blows that out of the water. I invite you to stand with me this morning and let's read Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 9. Just a, a quick textual note, some of your Bibles are going to add some words in verses 4 and 5 that the ESV and other modern translations do not have. So that's what will happen if you're following along in a King James or a New King James. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Father, many of us get weary praying. Many of us, if we take a moment to be honest with ourselves and honest with you, we we doubt. Sometimes it seems like we pray for things over and over and over and over and It could be that we don't like your answer, or it really could be that you seem to be staying your answer right now. Father, would you give us hope to see how great of a redeemer you are? Would you show us today the lengths you go to, to not only save a person like Saul, but also to save the world through a man like Saul? Father, you call us all to save the world with the message that you bring by pointing people to Christ. Would you remind us today of doing that? Would you give us power and wisdom and boldness and courage to continue to point people to Christ? Father, may your Spirit speak and may we listen. Would you open our hearts and eyes and ears to hear you? Would you break down barriers, break down defenses that we've already built or that the enemy has built? Father, would we be tenderhearted towards you to receive everything you have for us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, yes. Sorry. I thought I just had bad glasses. Uh, No, that doesn't seem to be working. There we go. Opposing Christ, encountering Christ... Blind to Christ—that's our heading today. Three points to go to, go through to navigate this passage. And all those, although we are beginning anew again in the Book of Acts, I think it's important to remember we we come to a book that has had some chapters leading up to Chapter Nine. So it's important to realize a thread that's already been weaving in this tapestry of the Book of Acts. One of my commentaries, I think, rightly suggests that this conversion in this episode in Acts chapter 9, is probably the second most important event of the book. The first event being Pentecost. We know that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls down on believers and His filling believers and baptizing them is a recurring theme throughout the remainder of Acts. And in fact, by the end of our episode, um, and actually later on I should say in Acts 9, Paul will also receive the Holy Spirit. But consider this, including this telling right here, there are three tellings of Saul's conversion in the book. This first depiction here, and then twice out of the mouth of Paul, never mind the allusions that Paul makes to it in his letters as well. And just by way of example, the final week of Christ, which is often called the passion story, is clearly told four times, one in each gospel account, in fact, it usually encompasses about one third of most of the gospels. While Saul's conversion doesn't take up that much space, just a half of a chapter to begin with in Acts, it's nevertheless told three times. Repetitious, or repetition usually means significance. And without Saul's conversion, we don't get really the second greatest contributor to the New Testament. Paul, has lots of books by word count, though. Luke is the biggest author of the New Testament, Um, his gospel account in the book we're in right here. But without Saul's conversion, we do not get 13, maybe 14 if he wrote Hebrews, books of the Bible. It's understandable as to why his conversion is of great focus and interest. And additionally, we are also in the second of three notable conversions in the middle of the book of Acts. The first conversion was that of the Ethiopian eunuch in the chapter before, Acts chapter 8. Here's the second one in chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, a Roman centurion named Cornelius will be saved. So these are two Gentile converts, kind of, on either side of the one person who would be called the apostle to the Gentiles. And above these all, if you can recall half a year ago, the Lord's providence was well over the Ethiopian eunuch. He brought Philip down to a road in the middle of nowhere just at the right time to catch a, a Ethiopian eunuch. Reading in Isaiah to what Philip revealed was about the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're in the middle of the desert and they just happened to come across a body of water to baptize the Ethiopian at the right time. And then Philip was supernaturally transported away from him In fact, it could be said that Philip was first down in Samaria and then witnessing here from hoping to get away from Jerusalem at the same time that Saul and others were starting to persecute more harshly in Jerusalem. We no doubt see God show up here for Saul and for Cornelius. You may recall that both Cornelius and Peter are having dreams to bring them together. The point is, is God is bringing about... Really, his third part of the Great Commission in Acts 1-8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But just as the disciples witnessed in Jerusalem, they were persecuted for it, culminating in the death of Stephen and the disciples then went to Samaria, The odds are the disciples are leaving Jerusalem, going to Samaria, going to the other ends of the earth, and apparently there were some coming as far as Damascus. And we see in our first section about a man opposed to Christ. It says, "...but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul's own words, when he's telling of his conversion later to King Agrippa, he says, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And Luke says back here in Acts 9.1 that he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. One of my commentators would say poetically, the very breath of Saul's life was hot with anger against the believers. Saul is a known enemy to Christians. We see this later in the passage with Ananias, you know, he, here's a guy, people never learn in the Bible, do they, to start debating with God. (laughs) But Ananias is having a debate with God, do you really want me to go help out that Christian hater? (laughs) Make no mistake, Saul was feared. Not unlike ISIS being feared. See, Saul was not just nominally against Christians with legislation. He had no qualms about Christians ultimately being executed. And may have, in fact, been guilty with the blood of some directly. So Saul's going with intent to take back any believers in Damascus. That's about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. He's going to take them back to the hotbed of persecution in Jerusalem and have them tried because the courts are so fair there. And apparently, Saul had nothing better to do than to walk 135 miles brutally, to brutally persecute more Christians, I should say, because he apparently wasn't getting enough of it in Jerusalem. Damascus had a large Jewish population. In fact, some see Saul's conversion about A.D. 34, and by the 60s AD, a Jewish historian named Josephus said that in the Jewish war, about 10,000 Jews in Damascus were destroyed at one time. So a big Jewish population. So likely the believers here in Damascus are just Jewish converts at this point. Um, um, since Christians are by and large not really seeking to convert Gentiles yet. Perhaps some Jews of Damascus attended Pentecost in Jerusalem, and maybe they went back to bring the message back. It could be that the very persecution that Saul started, some of the disciples went to Damascus. Either way, Saul knows that there are Christians in Damascus, and his plan is to persecute them there, because he's such a nice guy. God's got another plan. That's what we see here in verses 3 through 6, but I want you to hear that. Saul is on his way in a very real way, to do harm to Christ and his church. He's on the road, the very road, of a most grievous and demonic pursuit, and God meets him there, and God wins. God wins. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. When Paul would tell this story later in Acts, he says the light is brighter than the midday sun. And falling to the ground, now strict Jews, strict Jews, maybe like Saul, who I think is a very strict Jew, sometimes Saul riding horseback as a Roman thing. <laughs> and so it's possible Saul was walking when he fell to the ground. He heard a verse voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me, not my people, but me says Jesus. We'll talk about that. And then verse 5, And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus told his disciples again in Acts one eight that they would be his witnesses. What they've seen of Christ, they tell about Christ. Perhaps, Whenever you think about telling others about Christ, that will make it simple for you. What do I say to people when I witness to them? Just tell them about Christ. Tell them about who He is. Tell them about what He's done. Tell them about what He expects. Tell them about Christ. Beyond witnesses, we know that they are disciples. We know that they are friends. Sounds like a church should take that name. And Jesus makes no qualms about what that means especially when it comes to another Gospel writer, John, what he records Jesus saying. It's very interesting the remarks that Jesus says in John. John 14.12 says, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Verses 19 and 20, he says, "...because I live, you also will live." In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Very close identification there. Chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. But perhaps the most relevant to Jesus' words to Paul here are found here in John 15, 18-25. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. See, that's where I hear Jesus says, Why do you persecute me? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The likes of Saul, Pharisees, also persecuted Jesus. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. You hear that? Saul does not hate the Christians... So much as he hates Jesus, because they do not know him who sent me, remember that highlight john fifteen twenty one if you want to, and write acts nine four in your margins verse twenty two If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also <clears throat> That connects back with verse 21, with what we just highlighted. Verse 24, if I had not done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, they hated me without a cause. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me, and whoever hates me hates my father also. This connects exactly with Saul. And it makes me wonder, does it connect with me? See, it's interesting. Jesus also says, according to Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? How many of you can do all that right now? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, that's it. Go home now. This refers to Christians, yes, but by virtue of Jesus being the God that Jews should worship, Here is Saul believing himself to be a great defender of orthodoxy by being a great persecutor of what he sees to be a tremendous threat to the holiness and integrity of God. Paul said that he saw himself this way in Philippians 3, 5 and 6. He says, he was priding himself that he was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, Saul thinks he is the believer of believers. There are Saul's today in church, folks. And I'm pretty sure I've been here a few times in some small way. Thankfully, I've not gone out and killed anyone yet. So, so holy that to the point that anybody else who so much bats an eye or things differently, I'm going to find that hill to die on. But I don't plan on dying. I plan on using that hill to snipe out my opponents to my holy and sacred view of God. And here's, here's what I used to think about Saul. Here's what I used to think about him. Wow, Saul's so misled that he's willing to kill people who don't believe like him. I do still believe that Saul is misled, but consider this. There's, an, there's many unsettling passages to many people in the Old Testament. And I wonder if you remember the story of the golden calf. We seem to remember some parts of it, especially the funny parts. Moses is up on the mountain with God. Meanwhile, down the mountain, the Israelites are thinking that Moses isn't going to return. So they think he's gone, maybe dead. We don't know what happened, Aaron. How about you make us gods? That escalated quickly. Aaron says, sure, give me all your jewelry. Is he a thief? No, he's too dumb to take it. He melts it all down and makes some gods. And when Moses shows up and asks what happens, Aaron says, I don't know. We just threw all the jewelry in and out popped this golden calf. What else could we do but worship it? Moses is not laughing. Do you remember what Moses does? Exodus 32 Beginning with twenty-five, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, I want you know, you know Moses is the author of this book. Um, verse twenty-six: Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, "Who was on the Lord's side? Come to me." And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, "Thus says the Lord God of Israel: Put your sword." On your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. (laughs) Ouch. God's not playing around. He wants to be worshipped solely. He wants to be worshipped exclusively. Deuteronomy 6 says, we hear the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so, here's what I'm saying. It doesn't take me long to wonder how Saul came to his conclusions. He's entrenched in the Judaism of his day, in which the Gospel accounts tells us that Jesus constantly was correcting, instructing, and getting to the heart of, of the law and saying, you've heard it been said, but I say, or truly I tell you. And when God becomes flesh and corrects his followers on what to believe, you should probably listen to God. (laughs) Even so, we see how the Pharisees were unwilling to believe. Saul is a devout follower, and where it seems many Pharisees didn't want to believe for fear of losing their power, Here is Saul not believing for fear of losing the integrity and the tradition and the orthodoxy of what he knows to be the holy law. He is a Bible thumper with his Bible, and he's steeped in the man-made traditions of his Bible. Friends, Jesus embodied everything Saul hates because Jesus challenged everything Saul knew about the Judaism of his day. Jesus declared himself to be the temple. Of God, Jesus declared himself to be the righteousness people must cling to to be saved. Jesus declared himself to be the mediator between God and man. Jesus declared himself to be Yahweh. I am. And so with Jesus attacking everything mentally, spiritually, and belief-wise in Saul, Saul sets out to do a Moses in his mind. Saul sets out to purify and make holy the people of God. He wants to rid the world of any Jew who would claim to be Jewish but does not hold to the Jewishness that Saul holds dear. And so he persecutes them. But he is in actuality persecuting God. He's a hostile enemy of God. He's attacking the very kingdom advancement of God. And by Jesus' words that we went through a while ago, Saul does not love God. He's not defending God. He hates Him. He hates Him. But then Saul seems to have a quick turnaround, a quick acceptance. That's something we would all wish for, I know. Wouldn't it be nice if the person that you really want to be saved was quick and turning around? Hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? Yes, sure, please, I want to be saved. <laughs> Verses 5 and 6, here it says, uh, here we hear in the ESV again. And he, that is Paul, said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Uh, The modern English version, also reflected in the King James and New King James, adds a few words. He said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Trembling, Trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what will you have me do? The Lord said to him, Rise up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is one of those, some manuscripts have these extra words, other manuscripts do not have these sort of words, sort of thing. Some folks who are okay with leaving out the extra material because all of the extra material is found in Acts when Paul is telling his conversion story in the manuscripts where this material is missing in Acts chapter 9. Some say that an ancient translator, Erasmus, took the liberty to fill out the conversion story in Acts 9 from Paul's own words. So that's what all that is about. But in either rendition, with or without the added words, I am personally blown away by the quick change of heart here. I think the change of heart births from three simple words. I am Jesus. Remember what I said. Jesus embodied everything that Saul hates. Jesus was the source of, of his persecution. Jesus was not just a big part of his dislike for the Christians. It wasn't even that Jesus was one of many irritating aspects of Christianity. Christians miss this too much today. But when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was not saying, hey, add me in the way you think about God. Just put me in there somewhere. No, rather, Jesus is the way Jesus is the truth and he is the life. Nobody comes to the father except through him. And so while Saul is on his way to persecute followers of Jesus, Jesus shows up here, persecute me. (laughs) Go ahead, Saul. While Saul was 100% certain that the followers of Jesus was following a a false teacher, and now he was certainly a dead, crucified teacher, Jesus shows up to Paul, and by his mere manifestation of himself, he's saying, I am alive. (laughs) I am who I said I am, and you persecute me, Yahweh. You persecute the Lord. And what Saul reveals is that underneath the bulky love of orthodoxy and the false godliness and the faith of his father's, is something that also self-righteous religious people can take a hint from. And that is a spirit-given, tender heart towards God. A heart that bends to His truth. Not assumes that it has truth. A heart that is willing to change its beliefs when truth confronts it. Not a heart that believes it already has the truth. I want to emphasize that that is spirit-given. A supernatural aspect We don't know the exact moments when Saul's heart truly finally softened. When was he saved? We find out here that he's blinded, and so what else is he to do except listen to the voice that's talking to him? You really can't do anything else. In the last three verses, we read about being blind to Christ. This has multiple meanings. It says, "...the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing." So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So interestingly enough, this is the first time in this passage where we're finally let in on the fact that Saul is not traveling alone. We don't know who these people are with him. They could be temple guards. They could be other fired-up Pharisees. They could be zealots agreeing with Saul. We don't know. Furthermore, Saul irons out how they exactly heard the voice. Namely, they didn't understand the voice. Chapter 22, verse 9 says, Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And this is actually a passage we just read in Sunday school in John, uh, the triumphal entry in the book of John. We were told that after Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he Either he realizes or he just states that his final days are there. The hour has come. And he says in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. Apparently, when God speaks, he can speak in such a way where some hear and others maybe just hear a sound, but they can't make out the words. Apparently, that's what's happening here with Saul and those around him. We also see from Saul's own words back in Acts 22.9 that the companions saw the light, but then it says back in Acts 9 that they saw no one. Saul's comparisons um, hear or companions, I should say, hear a sound but not a voice, and they see a light but they don't see Jesus. As for Saul, we're hearing the undeniable voice of Jesus and seeing a light, but I wonder, did he actually see the figure of Jesus? I lean towards yes, he did. In 1 Corinthians fifteen, Paul is laying out the fact that the resurrected Christ appeared to lots of people, and then he culminates in the simple phrase, "Last of all." As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He appeared to me. I'm assuming that the Corinthians had heard of Saul's conversion, but even if they hadn't, the most simplest way to understand that phrase is exactly how it sounds. Jesus appeared to Saul. But after seeing Jesus in his glory, we find that he is blind, Saul is. It's interesting that I bring up Moses. Moses, for most Pharisees, was their hero. In fact, we hear Jesus say to some Jews in John 5.45 that Moses is whom they have set their hopes on. <clears throat> I'm reminded of a, a sermon of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're, we're given blessings for obeying God and we're given curses for disobeying God. And among those curses we read that the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. Or what about what Bill read for us in Isaiah 59, beginning, or what he said in verse 10. says, We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope for those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those full of vigor we are like dead men. Perhaps in the blindness that Saul is led to Damascus, in the blindness of three days there, he begins to reflect on the warnings in Scripture, curses for disobedience. And he comes to Damascus, we hear from one of my commentators, it says, thus Paul entered Damascus in a very different manner from that which he had planned. Instead of hauling men and women and committing them to prison, he himself is led, humbled, afflicted, and blind, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And I also like what one of my other commentators says. He says, to say the least, Saul is at a crossroads in his life. He is in unfamiliar surroundings, having just encountered the person of the living God, having been physically blinded by the light, being totally dependent on others, and now having to reexamine nearly everything he has been taught and believed. The mission of his life recently has been to oppose and eradicate the notion that Jesus was the Messiah and had been raised from the dead. He had been obsessed with eliminating all who followed such an idea, and now he himself has experienced firsthand the living presence of the very one he denied. This is what happens to God's persecutors. (laughs) This is what happened to Saul, and I want to take away this for us. God is working on those whom you want saved, and he is working on those whom you think could never be saved. Now here's what holds me back from saying things like this. It's easy to look at Saul and say, well, this is a very special occasion. We're talking about the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles. We're talking about a biblical author. Saul is in this special category and he needed to be saved and God set him aside for a special work. But does God truly care about my whoever? Saul himself believes that God cares about your whoever. Sometime later in life, he's doing missionary work for Jesus instead of persecuting him. And Saul says on Mars Hill in Athens that the God who made the world and everything in it, that right there says he's a God who cares about the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I've said this before, God doesn't need you. But He loves you and He wants you. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why did He make them like that? Verse 27 gives the answer, that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets had said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands how many people? All people everywhere to repent. God Himself gives life and breath to everything. He commands all people to repent. Saul also would say in 1 Timothy 2-4 that God is a God who desires All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in God and in Christ who appeared to Saul, Saul sees the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That means God cares. And that the same God who blinded Saul to save him from himself is bringing his grace and is bringing his pursuit filled with love for all people to all people. He's commanding everyone to repent. Friends, have no fear. God, by himself and through his body, we are his body, the church, will be working on those who you want saved and is also working on those whom you think can't be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as I began with, sometimes I'm wearied when I pray because sometimes we know those stubborn people, those stubborn people who don't see you. They're blind to you. Those people who mock you, just like whenever your son died, forgive them for they know not what they do. Just like when Stephen died from the persecution may be instigated by Saul, forgive them for they know not what they do. But here we see a picture of how far you have gone to change one man's heart. And before he want to put Saul into a special category by himself, Saul himself would turn around and say, God's like this with everyone. He's this desperate. He's this strong in the way he pursues everyone. It may not be as dramatic as Saul, but... Father, I have to trust you that you know exactly how people need to be told and the best scenario they can be told to accept you. But as was said, Father, there are only so many steps you can take. There is one step left remaining, and that is a yieldedness to you. Father, I am so desperate that I pray for your spirit to work yieldedness in the hearts of those who would hear. Holy Spirit, would you enter into those hearts of those that we are thinking of. And Father, would you act on them in such a way that to resist would be stupid. Father, that they would realize the desperation of the situation of life without you. Not just for life eternally, but even life here and now. Because you are a redeemer that redeems here and now as well. Father, you redeemed Saul while he was on earth and turned him into Paul. Who can you change our loved ones into while well, we long to see that day? And Father, would you continue to work on us that we wouldn't get so proud like Saul that we wouldn't think that we're on top of the world with the religion that we have, but instead that you would continue to work in us, yieldedness to your spirit, yielding us to what you would say and yielding us to do what you would call us to do. Father, we love you. We thank you and we pray that our acts would show that we love you. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.